God, and that we can come before you just filthy with sin and that uh, you look down and you call us daughters and sons because of Christ. God, we thank you for that. Lord, open our hearts and till the soil of our hearts so that it's uh, broken and so that it's soft and ready for good seed. God, may we as a body just help water each other with encouragement and uh, words that may hurt but that are intended for growth and may we be honest with one another but God may we love one another God through your spirit may we grow this body for your kingdom in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. And while you are doing so, if you will turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 40, but um, singing that last song, I'm reminded of a couple of verses. I don't know um, what was on Matt Marr's mind when he wrote that song. Um, but it reminds me of a couple of passages. One from Zephaniah chapter 3. Um, he writes, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. On that day it will be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And then from Romans chapter 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Just a reminder of not only His love for us, um, but His delight in us. Not only that He would sing over us, but that He would send His Spirit to testify to our spirit um, who we are and whose we are. Um, Again, Isaiah chapter 40 is where we'll be. Uh, And so a question. What do you think of when you think of God as Creator? What do you think of when you think of God as Creator? And you can answer that question out loud. Power. Power. Life. Life. Amazing. Amazing. Innovative. Innovative. The universe. Yeah, I think of stars. That's what creator stars. Don't know why. Just, uh, just because. A sense of humor. <laughs> complex. 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 Diverse. Diverse. Order. Order. Yeah, and how do you have? 
complexity and diversity and order at the same time, right? That takes some creativity, doesn't it? Provider. Provider. Life. 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 Yes. When I was, if we went back to the statement, the second part of that statement, creator of, of all that we see, um, kind of made a list myself. What do I think of when I think of God as creator? And a lot of those same words, a lot of those same ideas came out. What didn't come out is what we're going to get to eventually today. Um, as I begin thinking through particularly this passage um, where God has talked about as creator um, and then begin chasing some things down and, and wrestling with, with why God uses creator in this passage as opposed to something else. Um, I was encouraged and surprised and delighted and I want to share that with you this morning. So instead of reading the whole chapter all at once, I'm going to kind of read it uh, section by section and kind of talk about it a little bit and we'll get to the end and then we'll, we'll flesh it all out. So he begins by saying, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, we need some context. Why would someone need to cry comfort, comfort? Um, the context is that in chapter 39 we learn that the prophet speaks to Hezekiah and he says, uh, your, your children are going to go into exile. Uh, the sins of the nation will have caught up with you and you will be carried to Babylon and nothing will be left. That's bad news. We need, we need to get out of our New Testament mindset for just a moment and go back and pretend like we're a, a 6th century B.C. Jew who has been promised by God that you are His covenant people. You are His people, His possession. You are a kingdom of priests. You're His prized possession forever. And you've just learned that you're going to be exiled. The glory of the temple will be removed. The kings will be carted off, will become servants for the nation of Babylon. That's not good news. I don't know whatever the worst thing that you could think of, think of that. That's, that's the thought that enters into their mind. The covenant God is abandoning us. Now, that's the thought that probably goes through their mind. They deserve it. He made promises to them, to Moses, if you disobey, I'm going to cart you off eventually. And that's coming true. But he says, comfort, comfort my people. And then he also says, your iniquity is going to be pardoned. And the first question I have is, how is that possible if they're out of the land, there's no temple, there's no sacrifices, where does that pardon come from? That should be in the back of our mind. Where are we getting this comfort from? How's it going to happen? We should be thinking these thoughts as we read through this. As someone reading through this would be going, I don't get it, I don't understand. So we get to verses 3 through 5. 
A familiar passage to everybody, I hope. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight, the desert, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In these three verses we see that the coming of the King, the coming of God. And is that, are we now backtracking? And is this the coming of the King to bring destruction, to bring the exile? Or is this the coming of the King to bring comfort? Remember, you look at this through New Testament eyes and we know that this passage refers to whom? Christ, right? Both Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this passage. John the Baptist quotes this verse saying, this is referring to Jesus. Now what's interesting, in verse 3 it says, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. And in most of your Bibles that word Lord is what's called small caps. It's all capital letters, though the O and the R and the D are, are smaller than the L. And whenever you see that in your Bible, that is the word Yahweh. That's the covenant-keeping God, the one who said to Moses, I am who I am, right? And John the Baptist says, that's Jesus. So if someone ever says, the Bible doesn't ever say Jesus is God, yes, it does. Well, in lots of places, but there's another one right there in the Gospels. John the Baptist says, this one that's coming is Yahweh. He's God. But if I'm, again, a 6th century B.C. Jew, I don't know if he's coming for good or for ill. I don't know if this is for comfort or if this is for destruction. So I need to keep going. I need to keep reading. Verses 6 through 8, a voice cries, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauties like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Flesh is picked up again here from verse 5 where all flesh will see it. But what happens to the flesh here? What happens to the flesh here? It fades. Why? What causes it to fade? A hot August Texas sun, right? What causes it to fade? God's breath. God's breath. If He shows up and breathes on you, you're done. Right? You wither. Is this coming good news or is this coming bad news? <laughs> I'm still not sure. Is, is, is this coming of the king? Again, we know what's happening. They don't. Is this coming of the king good news or bad news? We are that fragile. We are that insecure. We are that temporal. It is like a sprout trying to survive in in August in Texas. If it's not well established by then, it doesn't have much of a chance. You don't need to mow your yard a whole lot in August in Texas. It just doesn't grow. Verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. 
Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those that are with the young. We finally, we finally get who this is that's coming. This is good news. Proclaim good news. Right? And there's, there's these two contrasts of assurance that he gives. We just read in 6-8 through eight that we're grass. We read in 9 and 10 that he is mighty and that his arm rules. He has both the strength and the authority to do what he needs to do. But it also says that his reward is with him, his recompense, his wages are with him. That still makes me a little nervous if I'm a Jew because what have I earned? What, what do I deserve? What have I... Think about my own life. We should think about our own lives. What, what do we deserve from God's hand? Right? Paul says the wages of sin is death. Right? And yet, we come and we show up this morning and we sing and we praise God. Why do we do that? Because those wages have been paid in Christ. And then the second contrast is in verse 11. He's a shepherd and we're sheep. If you don't know what sheep are, there's, there's three D's. Always remember what sheep are. They're dumb, they're dirty, and they're defenseless. And that's what God calls His people, sheep. We're dumb. We don't get it. We don't have, and we're going to see in a minute, we don't have near the wisdom that He has. We're dirty, we're tainted by sin, and we have no way to defend ourselves. We just can't do it. We're dumb, dirty, and defenseless. And he's a shepherd. And notice the verbs that he gives of what he does. He tends his flock, or he shepherds his flock. He takes care of them. He leads them to grass. He gathers them in his arms. So he tends them. He gathers them. He doesn't let us go astray. He keeps watch on them. He holds on to us. He gets us in the place that we're supposed to be. He carries them in his bosom. He not just gathers us, but... If there's a problem, He actually lifts us up. He carries us. And He gently leads those that are with young, those that are most vulnerable, those that have other cares, those that have other concerns. If there's something weighing you down, God leads you. The shepherd leads you. Verses 12 through 14. Now some questions. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Right, this is a span right here from the tip of your last finger to your thumb. That's what a span is, right? Now, if I get way down and look, I can almost get all of this. Well, not really. I can get one, two, three. I can get about a fourth of the sky, right? And it's. But he's there among it and. The heavens aren't any bigger than the span of this, right? That's big. I don't, I don't know if you, you've got that or not. How much water can you hold in your hand? 
And how long can you hold it before it dribbles over the side? Right, can you hold water? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who's measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The magnitude of the physical universe is nothing to God. The magnitude of the physical universe is nothing to Him. And the magnitude of His wisdom is beyond us understanding, right? Who, who did He consult? Did He ask anybody in here before He just... Some of you have advanced degrees, right? Some of you are really good at physics and math and stuff. Did He... There have been people like that through the ages. Did He ask anybody... You know, I bet Einstein would know what to do here. I bet Solomon would know how to fix this, right? Verses 15 through 17, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in his emptiness. Um, if you have a bucket and you put a drop in it and you pass it around, what would people say about it? If I, I put a drop, it's got a drop, and put a drop in a bucket and I showed it to you, I would say, what's in this? What would you say? You probably wouldn't even know. It's empty, right? So here is this God who the heavens fit between here and here, right? And we are like a drop in a bucket, which means we're what? Nothing. Right? Or the dust on a scale. Now, back then, they didn't have those electronic scales that could measure, you know, a thousandth of a, of a, of a gram, right? had scales and they would weigh out stuff to find measures and there'd be dust on the scales. Would it affect the weight of anything? I don't think of your modern day very accurate scale, but a scale back then if there was just dust on it, it wouldn't matter. No one would clean that off and go, make sure we get it right, right? That's us. That's the nation. Not just us, not just you individually, right? The nations are dust, Right? And then, what do the nations offer? We're talking about redemption, right? He says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. So the the burnt offering, again, from Leviticus, that thing that allowed the people to come into God's presence, in one sense, one of the offerings that allowed them to do that. And it was burned outside the, the tabernacle, outside the temple. There was an altar outside. That's what would have to happen first. You'd bring your burnt offering first. And he says, there's not enough animals or wood in the forests of Lebanon to make up for the problems that the people of the world have. And that should humble us a little. We, we can't find enough sacrifices to make up for our sin. 
So how does Israel get redemption? Especially if they're in exile. What comfort is there? I mean, this sounds like good news, but in the back of my mind I'm thinking, I'm toast. <laughs> I'm still not sure, God, how, how we're going to fix this mess that we're in. Verses 18 through 20. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for gold or silver chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Um, see, we're less than a drop in the bucket, right? And yet, we try to create things, and so we try to create things that we can control. But I, I can't control my world. I'm really nothing compared to the vastness of the universe and to God, so I'll make something that I can control. A block of wood, a statue of gold, something that, that I can move around if I need to, something that I can um, pray to, and if the circumstances line up right, I'll say, yes, this did it. We're pathetic. Now, I don't know that many of us in here get a block of wood or a piece of gold and set it up and bow down to it, but we do it all the time with other stuff, right? We make idols all the time. Um, someone once said, um, your goal in life should be to find a, master, a good master that you, could, that you can be a slave to because you will be a slave to something. And the question is, will you find one, a master that's good? Most of the time we settle for lesser things. We settle for lesser gods. Entertainment, or money, or possessions, things that make us feel good. Other people, in fact, our children or our friends, any of those things can become idols. We're just more sophisticated than people back then that we don't carve little statues of of false gods. 21 through 24. Do you not know? Do you not hear? It's funny that he asked them that question because that's exactly what those idols are like. They don't know and they don't hear. In one sense, have you become like your idols? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. Going back to what we talked about earlier, when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. When we forget who God is, we're like the idols we create. We don't hear, we don't know. But God sits above all that. He controls the rulers of the earth. Um, he's above and separate from the creation. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The princes and the rulers of the earth um, do what He says, and when He chooses to blow, whatever there is withers.
So what picture is he painting so far? What picture is he painting? If you had to sum up those first 24 verses. We're temporary. We're temporary. What picture is he painting of God? He's like, awesome or big, right? Awesome. From the back in the back, spreading their arms, right? Just, he's setting up the contrast of, he is God and I am not. Right? And we have to, I have to, keep going back and thinking, oh yeah, but he keeps talking about that there's comfort. Right? There's comfort. There's comfort. This one brings comfort. 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He's talking about the lights in the heavens, the stars. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name? By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He's setting us up for something in a second. God names each star and He knows where they all are. It's like a, a, it's a military term. It says um, He calls them all by name. It's like a roll call, right? And not one of them is missing. There's not a single star that's AWOL. He knows exactly where every one of them is. And the idea of naming something means you take responsibility for it and you care for it. So it's not just that he knows everything, he knows everything and is concerned about everything. Right? He names every star, he knows where they all are. If this is true, if this is true, then in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my ride is disregarded by my God? He doesn't see me, he doesn't care. And Isaiah says, if he knows where every star is and he named them, why would you even begin to think that he doesn't know where you are and that he cares about you? Why do we think that we can hide or that he doesn't care? And then he ends this passage with these words. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So why in this end passage when he says, I will carry you, I'll get you where you're going, the idea of coming back from exile, that long journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem, you will walk and you will not faint. I'll get you back. Why does he, why does he end this? Why does he use the term creator 
there. Why not God Almighty or Lord of hosts, God of armies who will watch over as you come back? Why Creator? Why does He use the word Creator? Why is that comforting to us? Why should it be comforting to us? Because none of you said a minute ago, I said, what do you think of when you think of Creator? None of you said comforting. You said these big words, right? Some of those might be comforting, but we talked about vastness and expanse and bigness and power and might. Why not comfort? It shows an infinite love by that Creator and a purpose. How do we know that? Because, because if, if, if someone just creates something, right? If God just says, I'm going to make something, right? How do we know there's love involved in that? Why does he just not end with that? I'm going to make them and leave them to their own business, right? Oh, I might come down and interact with them and get on to them and, and, and beat them some, right, when they don't do what I think they should do, but why do we think that? And the reason we do think that, the reason we do believe that that's true, is in John chapter 17. So if you'll turn over there for a moment. Creator doesn't mean I made you and now I'm just going to put up with you. It's not what Creator means in the Bible. not what He speaks of. We don't serve a divine policeman who has all these rules and if He catches us, there might be a ticket or He might be gracious and let us off. But when you drive away from a cop who's let you off from a ticket, do you love him? You might be thankful You might be grateful, but do you love him? Did that that necessarily engender any love towards you? Right? There might have been some mercy involved. So why do we love him? John 17, verse 24, Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now last week we talked about the fact that God was whole, right? That there's not one characteristic that's more prominent than another characteristic. The danger of just thinking of God first and foremost as Creator because the Bible begins that way. In the beginning, God created, right? But as we read the whole story, what we learn is is, is before that creation, God was always a creating being. He was Father. Both Old and New Testament talk about Him as always being Father. And before He created the world, He was Father to the Son, the second person of the Trinity. We'll flesh that out some more either next week or the week after when we talk about that in detail. And not only was He Father, but He was a loving Father. All that you see around you, everything that you look at, the creation is not the creation. It's not God's what made Him Creator. He's been Creator for all time because he's a loving father. It's what fathers do. They create, they beget life. He's a giving being. 
He didn't create because he needed someone to love. There was already the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this mutual loving relationship that was giving. And so this is just a a natural outflow of that. You are just a natural outflow of a relationship that existed for eternity. That's why that is comforting because a God who creates necessarily loves what He creates. He's a father for His children. His desire is to pursue you. His desire is to win your love. That's why there's comfort. That's why He uses and He ends with the designation of He's Creator because that does bring comfort because He's always been Creator. He's always been a loving Father. You can't separate those two out. They go together. You can't separate Creator and loving Father. They... That's who He is, right? Remember last week we said that's who He is. His characteristic is who He is. He's not more loving than He is wrathful. He's not more merciful than He is just. And because He is the Creator, and because He is love, you should depend on Him to comfort you in the Son. It's the only way it happens is through Christ. Like the people back in that time didn't know from Isaiah, but we know that that's who it is that brings redemption, that brings pardon, that brings the comfort is Christ Jesus. Those first few verses that John the Baptist quotes. We can trust Him. We can depend upon Him. He doesn't leave His creation to flounder but He cares for us. The question is, will we depend upon that or are we looking for something else for comfort? But then that also should make us think, well, if I'm made in His image, what does that say about me? What does that say about us? If we're made in His image, what does that say about us in terms of Him being a Creator? Is anyone in here creators? Y'all creators? Nobody's in here a creator? We have one honest person. Yes. Yes, you are. You've been made in His image, so you have, certainly not in the way that He's a creator, but we have, that spark of the divine image, we have creative abilities. So what does the way that He creates say about the way that we should create? Now, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily an artist or a musician. We create all the time. We, we make things. We produce things. We say words. We bring life to people by the way we say things, by what we do. So what does that say about us? What should our creations be like? Yes, and His creation is always what? The way He creates. 
Remember, he's not just a creator, he's also... Oh, it's the slide before. Right? Right? When we create something, when we interact with people, we should... Our purpose should be that they would know God's love and that they would know our love for them. Right? When you interact with people, your goal, your purpose should be to bring life to people. A life that is loving. In our words and our actions. We create all the time because we do things. We say things. We we enter into a situation and it's different than it would have been had we not entered into it. So we're creating. Whether that's conversation or that's we actually physically make something or draw something or play something. For those of you that are mechanical or artistic or musical. Or we help people or we encourage people or we're generous for people. You're creating all the time. The question is, are you creating in love and for the purpose of showing God's love? Because the hard part is, we want to create for ourselves. We want people to notice us. We want people to love us. And we've got to remember that we love because God first loved us. So if we want love, we've got to give it first. So as you enter into people's lives this week, you will create situations. And my challenge, my encouragement to you is that you would do it in love, modeling your Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessings and your love and your grace and your mercy. God, I pray that you would um, use your word to encourage and challenge us to be your people. And that we would delight in you and you alone. Thank you for creating the world that you have given us. Thank you for sustaining it. And thank you for loving it. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.